Well, this morning we begin a new series, a new series on the being and the attributes of God. I will open with a provocative thesis. Christians are not much interested in God. Christians are not much interested in God. Now, that seems preposterous, maybe even offensive. What am I even talking about? Well, one way to get at this is what I've previously called the God and X problem, which is the first point there in your bulletin. The God and X thing is a situation that arises where X is something good. Right? Some noble Christian thing. And all Christians have their X. Because we all have gifts. We all have vocations. There's nothing wrong with X. X might be prayer. It might be ministry. It might be engaging American culture. It could be family or discipleship or any number of wholesome things. But what happens over time is that X becomes big, enormous, and God himself becomes small, and he fades into the background. And at some point, you could just replace the word God with green, and nothing would actually change in the substance of X. Everything would go on as normal. God could have four persons in his being instead of three, and almost nothing would change with our exes. God could have 75 people in his being. X would be the same for almost everybody. And that's of diagnostic significance for the state of our souls. X looks and sounds and feels the same. And this is because serving... Loving, knowing God, has been identified with X. Collapsed into X. Collapsed into being busy with X. It's a minister's temptation. God in himself, in his eternal being, as father who begets a son, and who together spirate or breathe forth the Spirit, apart from and above and before all created things. That God, who's not one or two or four, but three persons, that God in itself holds very little interest. God is, in the words of one theologian, weightless for the American church. Weightless. All that is really needed to underwrite our X, in most cases, is a general monotheism. Meaning, like, it's good that God's there because we need him to basically drop down a worldview and some power with the worldview so that we can go implement the worldview by his power. But he himself eventually just fades off into the back. Gerhardus Voss was a well-known Dutch Reformed theologian, 
taught at what is now Calvin, taught at Princeton for many, many years in the early, late 19th, early 20th century. He actually addresses this problem. So you don't think that this is an idiosyncratic sort of concern of mine. He has a series of sermons which are outstanding. They're called Grace and Glory. They're collected in a little volume called Grace and Glory. These are marvelous sermons. This is a sermon from over 100 years ago. And Voss says this in the sermon. He says, the question, though searching, is an extremely simple one. Do we love God for his own sake and find in this love the inspiration of service? Or do we patronize him as an influential partner under whose auspices we can better conduct our manifold activities in the service of the world? Like, what's really happening? Is God being loved for his own sake? Or is God being loved because we need him to underwrite our engagement with our exes? That's a question from Vlad Voss is asking 120 years ago. Now, we do love that God sent Jesus. That's good. But precisely who this Jesus is, his nature, his person, his relationship to the triune being of God, right? rooted and receding back into the eternal trinity, we're not that interested in that. Imagine doing this with a spouse. He does this, I do that. She does this, I do that. We serve each other, we know what's required, we do our duty, there's a robust arrangement in place. But the inner recesses, Right, the deep psychological terrain, the unexplored depths of the soul of my spouse, eh, not really interested. That's how many of us are with respect to God's inner life. We don't care about it. We have no interest in it. As I've said before, if you were to set the ground rules for a single conversation such that one could only speak of God and God alone. Not God and X. Not God and any single thing in the created order. Just the unmeasured splendor of the triune God himself. Most of us could not sustain a two-minute conversation on that topic. This is a monumental tragedy. So God himself is weightless. X is enormous. It literally eats God up. So why is this distinction important? Because if we don't get this right, we're living disordered, malformed, misshapen lives, even in the midst of our Christian pursuits. So one way to get the frame for this right is from Isaiah 40, which was our Old Testament text this morning. It's a passage which speaks of this radical, infinite difference between God who is unmeasured and all created realities, right? There's this asymmetry between God and the whole created order. Look at verse 13, if you're following in Isaiah 40. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man has shown him his counsel? So God, God is unmeasured. He's unaided by his creation. He stands in no need of it. 
or a, or a million worlds for that matter. His counsel, the text says, his understanding, his justice, his knowledge are his own. Infinite, unsearchable, high above our thoughts and ways. Isaiah has a vision of this majestic one. And he continues in verses 15 to 17 to draw out the implications of this immensity. Of the infinite self-sufficient wisdom of God who is transcendent, who is the uncreated creator. And he says this. Behold. See. Now, you can only see this once you've seen the transcendent splendor of God. Behold, see. The nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are counted as dust on the scales. He takes up the coastlands in his hands like fine dust. This is actually a satirical commentary on on, on verse 12. The the waters of the whole creation, God, God says, can be measured in the hollow of my hand. The nations, then, are like a drop of water. If the mountains and the hills can be weighed on a standard kind of scale, everyday scale, then the nations, the prophet says, the nations, they're like dust on the scale. You know, that's all the nations. That's all of them right there. They have no weight at all. The coastlands are even finer, less significant dust. So for Isaiah, God is weighty, and all of the nations are weightless. The transcendent creator has no need of them, and in no way depends on them. Isaiah has no God and X problem. He does not end up collapsing God into X or X into God. And as for the worship, right, the religious devotion due to such a God, The the text says the choicest fruits of the whole creation would be wholly insufficient. Right? The text says Lebanon and all her beautiful cedar trees would not provide enough wood to keep the altar burning. And all of the beasts of Lebanon, the text goes on to say, would not be enough for a burnt offering to match the dignity of this God. If you could have all the nations bring all their choicest fruit, the creation in all of its vast glory possesses no intrinsic capacity to offer the worship due to the transcendent and infinite creator. As the hymn writer put it, were the whole realm of nature mine. Most of us would be, you know, we're happy with... uh, Things much smaller than that to offer to God. The hymn writer says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Far too small. And the nations themselves, they come back into view. Again, this is Isaiah 40, which I commend to you. It will be a text we we return to in this series over and over. They come back into view in verse 17. All the nations, the sum of them, are as nothing before him, and they are accounted as less than nothing and emptiness. And the word for nothing, it's used twice here, it actually means non-existence. So the vision of the creator God, 
for the prophet is so, it's so palpably real. It is so full of glory, it's as if the nations don't even exist. Or, and this is in the second half of verse 17, if possible, they are less than non-existent. Like Isaiah is running out of vocabulary to explain how, if a person is enthralled and enraptured with the triune God, just how inconsequential everything else becomes. Including all the stuff that we've been wrapped up with and passionate about for the last two years. He says the nations altogether are less than non-existent. He uses the word for emptiness. The word literally means void. It's the same word used in Genesis 1. Of the original unformed creation, the earth was formless and void. The nations, all of them, are a contentless abyss of nothingness. By the way, this is not an obscure passage, right? This is maybe the most famous passage in the whole book of Isaiah. The nations are a contentless abyss of nothing. I've always thought that should be chiseled onto the UN building in New York City. Let's put that right there. What is always missing in our endless chattering about American culture is the transcendent perspective in this text. And I suggest until you are gripped by this vision, you should not utter another syllable about the nations. They're less than nothing. Look, we can talk about the nations. Once a person really believes they are inconsequential and less than nothing in light of God, then the conversation can begin. Now, the point is not that God despises the nations. He will, in fact, redeem them. We sang that. Isaiah will see them later streaming into Zion. The point is this, beloved, in comparison to his being, his interior life and light, they are lighter than the finest dust. They're virtually nothing. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not, nothing, be all else to me, except what you are. Right? Whom have I in heaven besides thee, and on earth, I desire nothing else besides thee. Psalm 73. So this is the critical question in this hour, in my opinion. Does the vision of the incomparable God do this for your theology of the nations? Isaiah, unlike us, does not have a God and X problem. And that brings me to the second point here, ends and means. Ends and means. It turns out that really pernicious, like pathological things happen when the God and X problem is not seen, when it's not recognized, when it's not addressed, when God and X kind of become like this. They sort of compete with each other, or God gets collapsed into X, right? We don't see it. So here I want to go back to a few basic things. The church has use some very simple schemes historically to give us the big picture of what the Christian life is and what Christian thinking, Christian theology is, right? And everyone's a theologian. There are good theologians and bad theologians. There are no non-theologians. 
Right? And one of these little schemes that the church used in, in Latin is called exodus and reditus. And it just means like exit and return. The, the point is this. Everything goes forth from God. Everything returns to God. That's a simple enough idea, right? But it's really radical. Everything exits from God, flows forth from him. Everything returns from him. God is the source. God is the goal of all things. And so Christian reflection is the study of God and secondarily of all things in the light of God. And this means God, again, when I say God, I mean the triune God in his interior life. God himself is the beginning and the middle and the end of all Christian reflection. We read that in the New Testament lesson from Romans 11. From him, through him, Unto him are all things. God, that means God is the source. God is the agent. God is the end or goal of all things, including all our thoughts. Not a God who can be replaced with the word green and everything still functions the same, but the Christian God. Because of this, because of this, two things follow. The first is this. This means God himself is the great object. Right? And even here we have to stop and pause because God is not an object as other things are objects. Right? As other fields of study have objects. God is the object who is also subject. Right? He's the object who is living subject. He's the one whom, as we read in the gospel, we are to love with our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind. There are no faculties left over or untouched by the love of God. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of our faculties are summoned to this joyful task of loving this God. We are to be totally theocentric beings. Now, it's true enough and very important to say, right, that if we love God, we will do what he calls us to do. But again, we can't collapse loving God into our ministries, As I said before, this is a perpetual temptation for pastors. You may have the temptation in other ways. But we cannot collapse God or loving God into X. As if love for God was just love of this or that Christian service. God himself is to be our singular passion. Right? As Augustine said, God made us for himself. And our hearts are restless until they find our rest their rest in him. And this is, I think, the source of a lot of human unhappiness, a lot of Christian unhappiness. We're seeking it in ministry, or we're seeking it in a person, or we're seeking it in something that's Christian. We're seeking it in some noble thing, but we are not seeking it in God himself. God himself is your happiness. So, listen to the words of C.H. Spurgeon, great 19th century English preacher. I'm going to cite him here at some length. Because it's hard to improve on what he says. So please bear with me. But this is really good stuff. Spurgeon says this. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea. But it's equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. Right? The proper field of study for the elect is God himself. And he goes on. He says the proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. 
We don't even talk like this because X is so big for us. The proper study of the Christian is the Godhead. The Spurgeon again. The highest science. The loftiest speculation. The mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the doings, the existence of the great God that he calls Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind, he says, in the contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. That's what happened to Isaiah when he saw the infinite glory of God, right? He looks back at the nations and like, well, that's contemptible. The the subject, Spurgeon said, is so deep that it will drown your pride. You're not going to be able to grasp this subject and manage it. We come to this master science, Spurgeon says. We find that our plumb line can't sound its depth. Our eagle eye cannot scale its height. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God, he says. And here's the beautiful thing. He says, but while it humbles the mind, it expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind, he says, than the man who simply plods around the narrow globe. Right? The person who's constantly simply concerned with the imminent frame of things. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing, he says, will so enlarge your intellect. Nothing will so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation into the great subject. The subject of subjects, he says, the deity. And this, he goes on to say, is consoling. It's pastorally consoling. He says, you want to lose your sorrows? Do you want to drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea and be lost in that immensity. You shall come forth as from a couch of rest, he says, refreshed and invigorated. He concludes, I know nothing which can so comfort the soul of a devout as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. End quote. He was 20 years old when he wrote that. 20. It's as if Spurgeon believes that high theology is highly practical. You know what he doesn't have? He doesn't have a God and X problem. He doesn't just slide over God the way we do. Well, if you believe in God, then you've got to do this, 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 and this. And since we believe in God, we have to do that. Right? That's, that's, that's the God and X framework. Okay, we got God. How do we respond to this? Thanks, thanks, thanks for the basic principles, God. We might ask you for some grace along the way. Spurgeon doesn't do that. Nobody does that. We do it, though. So the second thing I want to draw your attention to, and again, this is what happens when this, when this God and X thing gets imbalanced. God becomes merely a means to an end. Right? Spurgeon sees this pretty clearly. Often this is very hard for us to see because the ends we have in view are often noble Christian ends. But it is still idolatry to make God a means to our ends. 
right? This tends to obscure the problem for us. God is never a means to an end. Never. Because he is always the end. Christ died, Peter says this with elegant simplicity in his epistle. Christ died, why? The just for the unjust to bring us to God. That's it. Christ died to bring us to God. That is the great end, seeing God. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. This is our blessed hope, this vision. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him like he is, John says. Revelation 22, they shall see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. So it's the worship of God then, this God, in contemplation, in vision, in song, in confession. This is the unending delight, the delightful occupation of every creature in the new heavens and the new earth. And what does this mean? Well, it mean, we say it a lot, but what it means has to be teased out a bit. It means that this one can never become a means to an end. We are so used to thinking of idolaters as being those other people out there. We forget Calvin's admonition where he says, our hearts are factories of idols. Right? Our hearts are little idol manufacturing plants. And they're very good at taking really good things and turning them into idols. Right? Here's what it often sounds like in our circles. It sounds like this. Trump, liberals, Trump. Democrats, gays, abortion, mass vaccines, mass vaccines, mass vaccines, Biden, Pelosi, on and on and on and on. Or you could flip that around. You could, you could put this in progressive circles. You could string together a bunch of concerns like this. Race, gender, climate, whiteness, Republicans, reparations, sexism, misogyny, patriarchy, patriarchy, whiteness. Now, if you dig around in the smoke of all the verbiage, You just might in there somewhere find a reference to God. But he will be weightless. It won't matter if he has four persons or three. You could replace it with green. Because you know what God has become in that situation? He's become a sort of background prop for the culture warrior. He certainly won't be the God who in our flesh lived out and taught the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, all of these are important matters. Politics is not inconsequential. I'm not saying these things don't matter. I'm relativizing these things. My contention here is you can't have a conversation properly until you have come to the place Isaiah is in Isaiah 40, where you see all the nations as less than nothing. From there, you might be able to rebuild and then have a reasonable, balanced, proportioned conversation. So what is wrong? Certainly if you ask, no one who is a Christian would confess that these things have actually supplanted the triune God as the deepest affection of their hearts. I mean, nobody's going to cop to that. Let's grant that that's the case. Let's hope that that's the case. We have this natural ability, right, to, to create idols. The problem, however, is what I always call here order and proportion. 
order and proportion. We get hours and hours and endless days and vast volumes of breath and heat and passion, hundreds of links and clips and memes and millions and millions of words on all that stuff I just went over. Right? This, this American political situation, that's clearly where all the passion lies. That's what people are anxious about, angry about, focused on. And guess what? If the passion lies there, it does not lie with the being of the triune God. It doesn't lie where Isaiah's passion is. People in the church are not accumulating stacks of books on the Holy Trinity during the pandemic. We have, however, earned honorary PhDs in just about every other subject under the sun. So if you let people talk, They will tell you what their chief end is. And in so doing, they will tell you what means are needed to achieve the end. Often this sounds like this. It sounds something like this. Because the culture is in such dire straits, because this is bad and that's bad and this is bad, we need to pray or worship. Because of X, Y, and Z, this is why we need the gospel. First of all, let me just stop here. Here's why you need the gospel. To be delivered from the wrath and curse of God, not to be delivered from political disenfranchisement. But the fact that we constantly talk this way makes us lose complete perspective. Because if God is weightless, then the wrath and curse of God are not the fundamental thing that the gospel is dealing with. But do you see what's happened here? Because I suspect many don't, right? In this universe which we now inhabit, the actual goal, again, not the stated goal, no one's going to stand up and say God himself is not my goal, but the actual goal, if you measure it by passion and time and words, is American cultural engagement or transformation. Measured by intensity, focus, verbiage, breath, that's the end. God and his gospel, it turns out, are a means to that end. And this is a perennial temptation. This is why we're going to have a series on the being of God. Here's Voss again from that same sermon. Now, remember, it's 120 years ago. He's not talking about our situation, our cultural moment. He's talking about an America that most of us would probably think is pretty idyllic, minus the racism. So this is Voss. He says, there is, this is a penetrating insight. There is even such a thing as worshiping one's religion instead of one's God. A lot of people I know, I think Christianity is kind of their God. You can kind of worship... Christianity is a wonderful thing, of course. I'm all for it, in case there's any doubts. But... It can, in fact, serve as a kind of religious substitute for a passionate involvement with the Holy Trinity himself. So that it's all about Christianity's impact here. Christianity did that. Christianity did this. Christianity did this. What's the Christian view of that? How's the Christian do that? Christianity did this and Christianity that. And you end up at a certain point of time realizing we might be worshiping our own religion here. So this is Voss, not me. There is such a thing as worshiping one's religion instead of one's God. And then he says this, how easily the mind falls into the habit of merely enlisting God as an ally in the fight for creature betterment 
almost oblivious to the fact that he is the king of glory for whose sake the whole world exists. And then he says this, sometimes it's difficult not to feel that God is reckoned with chiefly because his name, his prestige, and his resources are indispensable for success in a cause which really transcends him. But we need God's name. We need God's power, and we need his prestige because we have to beat these liberals. Right? So what Voss is saying, by the way, 1880, right, this is when he's saying this. He says, this happens to Christians. They are enlisting God. They are patronizing him. They need his name because there are causes that they want him to fight for. And it's really the cause, which is the end and the goal. The cause actually transcends God himself. It's an astonishing insight. His name and his prestige and his resources are indispensable for success in a cause that really transcends him. How can you tell? Well, the person will tell you. If you walk away from the conversation and you think, this person is fired up about the being of the triune God, or you walk away from the conversation thinking, this person is really angry about whatever it is this month, right? Well, then that's, we we know what the cause is then. The time may yet come, Voss says, when we can set him aside. This, beloved, is literally the inverse of Isaiah 40. Look, I know this is a provocative sermon. I am trying to convince you that you and I swim in an environment which is literally the inverse of Isaiah chapter 40. The nations are of vast importance. Did you see what they did yesterday? The nations are critically important. And God is shrunk down. And this is a serious disorder. So here's a thought experiment. I've shared it with you before. I'm going to do it again as a diagnostic healing device. If you think out of existence all of your passions, right, everything you're passionate about, everything that you've been passionate about for the last 22 months or 22 years, think it away. Just obliterate its being. In your cognitive universe, remove it. Then move out to all that's dear to you over the whole course of your life. Think it out of existence. Your children, think them away. Your spouse, your family, your friends, your town, your career, your church, your nation, your culture, your politics, your century, every other century. Just remove it. Think it out of existence. Then move out even wider. Every piece of art, every piece of technology, every hobby, every artifact ever made, every piece of food, every tribe, every language, every nation, every tongue, all people from all times and all that they've done. Think them all into nothingness. Think away all created things, period. It's a kind of cognitive asceticism. Think it away. Think yourself out of the world. What is left, right? What is left is not simply more interesting, but infinitely more interesting than everything you've thought out of existence. Because what is left is God. Just God, only God, our God, the triune God, stripped of all competitors. 
including Christianity, Christiany competitors, noble competitors, ministry competitors. We, in fact, do not believe this. And I include myself. That's why I said we do not believe that the triune God is infinitely more interesting than every created thing. And that's telling, is it not? I mean, most of us would say, huh, that seems like a theological conclusion I should affirm. It seems tough to avoid that. But then you look at our own existence, and you realize, well, nobody believes that. Just listen to us. The other stuff's all we talk about. From a Christian perspective, of course. So, It's the burden of this series to which I am inviting you today through this sermon to persuade us that, in fact, when we stop and pursue him, God is, in fact, more interesting than any and all created things. We are not just going to say that here. We are, Lord willing, going to move toward demonstrating it, hopefully. The genesis of this series, it probably goes back 12 or 15 years in my own life, but It goes back four or five years ago. Terry Johnson is a PCA pastor in Savannah, Georgia. Terry's been in the ministry like 40 years. He's written a lot of useful books on worship and pastoral ministries. A really noble guy. He's a good guy in the PCA. Um, Everybody in the South kind of knows who Terry is. Maybe up here, not as many people. But Terry wrote a book in like 2017 called um, The Being and Identity of God. And I got the book. And I started reading it. Now, he'd been preaching at Independent President Savannah for 40 years, and he said, this book came out of the fact that I wanted to, in my, one of my evening serv- in my evening service, preach a series on the attributes of God. I planned a 10-week series, he said. But when I dug into the, the subject matter and started doing my prep and my background reading, the series expanded to 82 sermons. And he said, then, even then, I had to artificially break it off. Now, I'm not going to give you 82 sermons in this series. But, but interestingly, he went on to say that it was the most transformative preaching he's ever done for his congregation and for his own soul. I mean, imagine that, right? Imagine being in pastoral ministry for 40 years and realizing, A, I've never actually preached on God alone. It's always God and something else. I don't know how many sermon series you've heard on this. Maybe you've heard a bunch of them. I haven't. I've not done it. You realize I've, not only, I've never actually stopped to focus on just God. And he said it was completely transformative for his own spiritual life. That's my intention here. I know I've been provocative. I hope I can count on your goodwill. I do not want it to be said of us as I opened, that we are not much interested in God. I think you see what I mean now by that. I was being intentionally provocative, but it should not be said of you. No one should be able to say of you, you are not much interested in God, or God is a means to an end, or God's prestige and name and power are being used for a cause which really transcends God. That should not be said of us. I don't want it to be said of us. Because to know God is eternal life. And what does Paul pray for the church in Ephesians? He prays for the church to be filled up to all the fullness of God. 
Right? This is your chief end. To glorify him and enjoy him. Enjoy God forever. Right? We should start this enjoyment now. In earnest. From him, through him, and unto him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Amen.